On Sunday evenings, we've been going through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And as we've gone through these, we've noticed again and again how he points the Thessalonians to Christ's return. He reminds them they are end-time people. And the way we've defined that is not that we know when exactly Christ is returning. We don't mean the end time in that sense. But the end time, as we're using it here, means they are living and we are living in the last time. We are living in the time between Christ's first and second arrival on earth. That is the end time. And in the passage we're going to look at this evening, Paul talks about an individual who he says is going to come to prominence before Christ's return. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. The passage we're going to look at is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're using one of the regular church Bibles, that's page 1189. And the large print Bible, it's uh, 1840. If you don't know which Bible you have, you can check them both, I guess. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll read the whole chapter. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved 
through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is God's word. Apparently, Paul is responding here to something that he's heard from Thessalonica. Verse 2 says, these people are in danger of being unsettled and alarmed. And the reason is, apparently, there's some teaching going around that says the day of the Lord has already come. Now, we've seen from 1 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord means the day of Christ's return. Some teaching is going around saying that Jesus has already come and gathered his people. Now, Paul may not be aware of all the details of this alarm. It could be that his own teaching is being distorted in Thessalonica. Or it could be new teaching is being spread around in his name, even though it didn't come from him at all. But whatever has given rise to this idea... Paul wants to assure them it's a false idea. And he wants to be very clear that no one will miss Christ's return. It's not going to happen secretly. And we might wonder how this wrong idea came about. Well, both Jesus and Paul said the day of the Lord would come like a thief in the night. Maybe some people took that to mean he would come quietly. But in fact, the point is he will come unexpectedly. That's the point of comparison with a thief in the night. The consistent message of the Bible is that he will not come quietly at all. The Bible tells us he will come with lots of noise and every eye will see him when he comes. And just in case we might think this is only an old idea, just a few weeks ago, two Jehovah's Witnesses stood on my doorstep and they told me that Jesus came back invisibly on October the 1st, 1914. So this kind of false teaching is still current. But here, Paul talks about something that will happen before Christ's return. In verses 3 to 12, he focuses on the Antichrist who will come first. Look at verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, that's the day of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul spoke about the Lord Jesus being revealed from heaven. Here he says someone else must be revealed first. 
In many ways, this person is going to mimic Christ. But actually, he will be the polar opposite of Christ, the anti-Christ. Paul calls him here the man of lawlessness and the man doomed to destruction, literally the son of destruction. So it's more likely that's referring to what characterizes this person rather than telling us what's going to happen to him. In other words, he is a destroyer. And he will come to prominence, Paul says, during a time of rebellion. When we looked last week at the end of Zechariah, we saw there that before the Lord returns, there will be a terrible time. A final, ultimate rebellion against God and his people. The book of Revelation repeats that message. And here, Paul says this man of lawlessness will come to the fore during that time, during the rebellion. And when he comes, he will claim ultimate authority. Verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Verse 5 makes it clear Paul has already taught the Thessalonians about this. So this is not new material for them. He's reminding them of what he's already told them. And in verse 4 he reminds them this man of lawlessness will claim ultimate authority for himself. Now whether or not he actually says, I am God... The point is, he will claim supreme God-like power for himself. And verse 4 says, he will exalt himself so that he sets himself up in God's temple. What does that mean? Well, there's a big Old Testament background to this. The book of Daniel prophesied an individual who would desecrate God's temple and who would exalt himself above every god. Now this actually happened several times in Israel's history. It was a recurring pattern in their history. Maybe the most famous example was when a Greek ruler called Antiochus IV murdered the high priest in Jerusalem and sacrificed pigs on the temple altar. But that was a short-lived desecration of God's temple. And it happened before the New Testament. The book of Daniel, though, foretold an ultimate, climactic desecration. And that's certainly what Paul is picking up on here. But the question is, does Paul believe this will be fulfilled in a bricks-and-mortar temple in Jerusalem? Today, are we to expect that temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt? Is this Antichrist figure going to set up his rule in a building? And there are some people who think the answer is yes. But I believe the New Testament gives us a different answer. Speaking to the church in Corinth, Paul says this, 
Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. There are several other passages where Paul makes exactly the same point. And we also find it in Peter's first letter and in Jesus' own teaching. This idea that the church is now God's temple, that's not an obscure Old New Testament idea. It's a central idea in the New Testament. And it's almost certainly what Paul has in mind when he talks here about God's temple. So then what is Paul saying in verse 4? He's saying this man of lawlessness will claim authority over the church. Not a building, but the men and women who make up the church. What will that look like? Well, Paul also says this man of lawlessness will seek to take God's place. So he will claim that he... Not God is the ultimate lawgiver. He will seek to contradict and override the instruction God has given in the Bible. So does this mean the man of lawlessness will be a church leader? Possibly. It could be someone who rises from within the church. But he will not necessarily be from the church. He could just as easily be someone with no church ties who claims authority over the church. Now, from what we've seen so far, we could point to many, many examples of what Paul's talking about. We could point to situations and individuals in history that line up with this so far. Paul is not talking about something that's unheard of. He's talking about a climactic occurrence of something that's been happening all through history. The New Testament tells us there are many antichrists, small a. This sort of thing goes on in every generation. Men repeatedly seek to claim God's place and override the authority of his word. There are many antichrists. But one day the final antichrist will come, capital A, and his arrival will lead to the climax of rebellion against God. Paul goes on to say the man of lawlessness will come at God's time. Verse 6. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. So the arrival of this individual can't just happen any old time. Verse 6 says he will be revealed at the proper time. In other words, he will be revealed when it's God's time for him to be revealed. Even this lawless man 
is not outside the bounds of God's control. In a moment, we'll ask what exactly will make it the proper time for him to be revealed. But first, notice that until God's time, his arrival is being held back or restrained. You'll notice verse 6 mentions what is holding him back. And verse 7 mentions the one who holds back the power of lawlessness. So there are two aspects to this holding back. Something and someone. What are they? Well, Paul doesn't tell us. But if we look to the rest of the Bible, I think we can come up with the most likely answers. In Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about this subject, he says this, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So if we ask, what's holding back the arrival of the man of lawlessness? I think the most likely answer is the preaching of the gospel is holding him back. In his mercy, God has allocated a certain amount of time for the gospel to be proclaimed across the world. And this final Antichrist will not come until that period of God's mercy is over. The Apostle Peter makes the same point in his second letter. As he responds to scoffers who are saying Jesus is never going to come back, Peter says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is amazingly patient but he will not be indefinitely patient. He has already set a limit on this period of patience. And when that limit is reached, there will be no more opportunity to respond to the gospel. And the man of lawlessness will be allowed to come. So if the preaching of the gospel is what is holding him back, Who is the who that's holding him back in verse 7? Well, the focus in this verse is a little different. We're told that although the final Antichrist hasn't arrived, the rebellious spirit of Antichrist is already at work. Earlier we said history is full of figures who oppose God, who set themselves up in God's place. They claim to be the final authority. They seek to overthrow God's word. That power of lawlessness is already at work in the world. But someone is preventing the arrival of the climactic man of lawlessness. Someone is ensuring he doesn't come until God's time for spreading the good news about Jesus is over. So who is this individual? Well, again, Paul doesn't tell us. But we've already seen that the book of Daniel provides the background to what Paul says here. And the book of Daniel tells us that behind 
the human conflicts we see in this world, there are parallel spiritual conflicts going on. Daniel tells us the angelic representatives of God and Satan are clashing over the kingdoms of this world. The key passages are Daniel chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 12. And as Daniel 12 speaks about the time of final rebellion, it mentions an angelic figure called Michael. Daniel is told that Michael is the great prince who protects your people, the people of God. Michael is also mentioned in the New Testament, performing the same role, protecting the people of God. So when we read 2 Thessalonians and ask, who is holding back the arrival of the man of lawlessness? I think the most likely answer is one of God's angelic beings. And although I would not be dogmatic and say it's definitely the angel Michael, I think it's significant that he is mentioned in the Old Testament background to our passage. Now, people have made other suggestions about the what and the who of verses 6 and 7. I don't think we can be certain about it, since Paul doesn't tell us what he means. But whatever conclusion we come to about about the what and the who is restraining the Antichrist... The key point here is this. He will come when it's God's time for him to come, not before. And I would imagine that all of this raises a question for us. What reason would God have for allowing him to come at all? Well, we're given the answer in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The Antichrist will come when the time for God's judgment has come. He will be allowed to come in order to bring rebellion to a climax. And then Christ will come bringing God's judgment. So when the final Antichrist comes, it will not be a sign that evil is winning. It will be the sign evil's time has run out. Verse 8 says, Christ will overthrow the enemy with the breath of his mouth. The Bible tells us God created with his powerful word. And he will bring about the destruction of evil also by his powerful word. Now all of this raises, I think, another question. If Christ's return is going to be like a thief in the night, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, and if no one except the Father knows the day or hour of Christ's return, as Jesus said in Mark 13, If that's true, how come Paul is telling us things that must precede Christ's arrival? Doesn't that imply we can know when he's going to come? 
I think the key to understanding this is something we've already noticed. History is full of antichrists, small a. It's full of men of lawlessness, figures who rise to prominence and attempt to put themselves in God's place and make their word supreme over his word. This is a pattern that recurs generation after generation. Almost every generation can point to someone who seems to fit the profile of the man of lawlessness. Every generation wonders if some antichrist of their day might actually be the final antichrist. During the Cold War, if you wanted to make some easy money, you could write a book showing how the current Russian leader was the Antichrist. I remember when I was a teenager leafing through a book claiming it was Saddam Hussein. And the guessing is still going on. There are always one or two solid candidates that we can latch on to. But the fact is, yes, this final figure will arrive before Christ, But until he comes to the very climax of his rebellion, we won't know he's the final one. And when he comes to the climax of his rebellion, then Christ will come. There's no indication in Scripture this figure is going to be at the height of his power for a long time. He might gather momentum for a long time behind the scenes. But the indication is that when he makes his major power play, Christ's arrival will follow very quickly. So what does this mean for you and me? It means we cannot be certain who the Antichrist is. We cannot be certain who he is until we see Christ coming on the clouds. That will be what definitively identifies the final Antichrist. His revealing was followed by the revealing of Christ. So it is essential for us to be ready for Christ's return. It's crucial we resist the lies of God's enemies. But it is foolish to try and identify the final Antichrist. My advice is don't waste your money on books that speculate about who it is. We've been told the man of lawlessness will come at God's proper time. We've said that means God's time for judgment. And Paul has more to say about that judgment in verses 9 to 12. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. 
Paul says the man of lawlessness will deceive those who refuse to love the truth. These verses tell us his arrival is part of God's judgment. But before we get to that, verse 9 tells us that Satan lies behind this man of lawlessness. It says his arrival will come in accordance with how Satan works, or simply in accordance with Satan's work. This human individual is an agent or a servant of Satan. Satan is a deceiver. The Bible consistently describes him that way. And here we're told that his servant will operate the same way. He will gain power through all sorts of displays of power, through signs and wonders that serve the lie. In the New Testament, Jesus and his followers are often described as doing signs and wonders. And the apostles' preaching is described sometimes as coming with displays of the Spirit's power. And here we're told the Antichrist will mimic Christ's work. That's why it will be so deceiving. It's unclear whether the signs and wonders he does will be actual or fake. But whatever the case is, their effect, verse 10, will be to deceive. And this is where the Antichrist, the servant of Satan, actually becomes a servant of God's judgment. He deceives those who are perishing. And if we ask why they're perishing, Paul says it's because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In this context, the truth means the good news about Jesus. These people have turned away from it. And so God finally brings judgment on them. And he does it by sending a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. The lie of the Antichrist. Verse 12 underlines for us that instead of loving the truth, these men and women delighted in wickedness. And so God gives them up to what they want. He causes them to believe the lie of the Antichrist and it is what they prefer. God is not sending a delusion on men and women who are seeking for Christ, who are genuinely searching for the truth. He says about those people, if you seek me, you will find me. Now, the people being spoken about here are people who have not believed the truth. They have turned their backs on it. And they will join the man of lawlessness and they will worship him. And along with him, they will be swept away in God's judgment. But what about those who do love the truth? Paul began his passage, you remember, by telling them not to be unsettled or alarmed. So how is he going to help them with that? 
Well, he closes chapter 2 with encouragement for God's faithful people. The believers in Thessalonica have just heard about a future of lawlessness and deception. How on earth are they going to approach that future with confidence? How are they going to stand firm? Paul says, remember that God chose you. Verse 13, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins with but. In other words, those who have not believed the truth have a frightening future ahead of them. But not you, brothers and sisters. You are loved by the Lord. How do you know that? Because he chose you. How do you know he chose you? Because his spirit worked in you and the result of the spirit's work is that when you heard the truth of the gospel, you believed it, and you were saved. The Bible tells us we cannot even respond to the gospel unless God works in our hearts. So if you have come to believe the gospel, that's proof you are loved by God. There's no reason for him to love any of us but he does. And he shows us, shows it, by calling us and moving us to respond to the gospel. And because of his loving work, we will not be swept away on the day of judgment. Instead, verse 14 says, we will share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of Christ's return will be an unimaginably great day for us. And surely that takes away our dread of anything that might come before Christ's return. Whatever suffering we might have to go through, beyond those sufferings, there is an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Remember that God chose you. He showed it by calling you. And he does not lose those he has chosen and called. He does not allow them to be deluded by Satan's deception. And then notice how Paul immediately follows this. He's just reminded these believers of God's sovereign care. He immediately then confronts them with their own responsibility in verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teaching we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Paul says, you've heard about the destiny of those who refuse to love the truth. So then, build your life on God's word. 
Make it your firm place to stand in life. Hold tight to it. And we cannot do that if we don't immerse ourselves in it. I'm sure that we could all come up with a dozen great excuses for why we don't read and study our Bibles more. Let's acknowledge that we can come up with those excuses. And then let's acknowledge that actually, when we neglect God's Word, we are playing with fire. What I mean is, those who will be deluded by Satan's lies are those who do not love the truth. That's what Paul has told us. So I have to ask myself, what do my Bible reading practices say about my own love of the truth? Do they indicate that I really do love the truth? We can come up with all the excuses we like. But if we love something, we will devote time to it. Let's build our lives on God's word. We can't stand firm or hold fast to it if we don't know it. We all know how to read. We all have good enough hearing to listen to sermons. We all have access to home groups where we can discuss God's word. So let's devote ourselves to it. And finally, Paul says, look to God for the strength you need. We have a responsibility to stand firm. We have to commit ourselves to that. And we have to realize who enables us to stand firm. Verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. As far as Paul is concerned, knowing that God provides does not cause us to sit back. Actually, it gives us the confidence to step out in obedience to God, to press on with good deeds and good words, knowing that he will provide. The Bible tells us there are difficulties ahead. But it also tells us we have no need to be unsettled or alarmed. The Bible promises God will give us the strength we need. And on the other side of the difficulties, we will share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to praise our God for his grace and his promises. We're going to do that by singing King of the Ages and then there is a higher throne. <laughs>